I'm told that the average dog can understand around 100 words. The really smart ones can go up to 300, and there's one dog, a border collie, by the name of Chaser, that researchers at the University of South Carolina say can understand 1,022 English words. Now, that's impressive to me. That's a bigger vocabulary than some human beings have, I think. But I'm pretty sure my dog, Hannah, doesn't have a thousand word vocabulary. Probably not 300, and I don't think she's got the hundred either. <laughs> Last Sunday night, you know, we had all the rain on Sunday, and that was a good thing. We all appreciated that. But we let my dog Hannah out after I got home from church on Sunday night in the backyard. It's real muddy. She goes all around the backyard. She comes in with paws that are knee deep, I guess you'd call them on a dog, knee deep in mud. Brought her in the house. She's supposed to sit down like a good dog. Sit, Hannah. She's supposed to, that's only two words. Sit, Hannah. Supposed to sit there and let me wipe her paws off, but she doesn't. She's so excited because of the rain, she bounds right past me, runs all over the house, gets mud everywhere. Everywhere. So once I caught her, I calmly, very calmly, sat down with her and explained in the most logical and reasonable way that I could that her behavior was simply unacceptable. And now I have to get the carpets cleaned, I told her. And given my schedule the next week or two, that was going to be difficult to schedule somebody in because I'm really busy the next couple of weeks. And, and what she had done was a royal pain in the backside. And all the while I'm saying that, she just sits there and looks at me, you know, tilts her heads. Like, I'm the one that's crazy. I look at her and say, look, I'm not the one that's crazy here. I'm not the one that ran all over the house with my feet muddy. You're the one that's crazy. And I'd appreciate it if you don't ever do that again. It still didn't get through. Even though at the end I was talking real slowly, I'd appreciate it if you would never do that again. But she tilts her head like I'm speaking Chinese. And that's frustrating. I wasn't angry, believe it or not, I wasn't angry. I was speaking slowly, but I got the feeling that I never got through to her. Have you ever had a conversation with a non-Christian that went something like that? Where you're speaking very articulately, very logically, very reasonably, very rationally. You're speaking to them about spiritual things, and it just doesn't seem to get through, and they look at you like you're crazy. You can tell they're listening, and they're trying to be nice, but they just don't get it. And when it's all over, you get the distinct feeling that they think that you're just a little bit off. Nice, perhaps, but you're just a little bit off speaking to them about these things. If you've experienced that, don't feel bad. There are some things that they can't understand. And that's the subject of our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. There are some things that they can't understand. Before we get into the text itself, I should say that this lack of understanding has absolutely nothing to do with their IQ or their reasoning skills. It has to do with enablement. It doesn't mean that those without the Holy Spirit cannot understand basic morality or ethics. That's a misunderstanding on our part of this passage. Unbelievers certainly can understand basic ethics, the difference between right and wrong. There is a moral law that Paul writes about in the book of Romans that is written on the hearts of every man. That's the reason we have a moral law argument for the existence of God. Everyone knows basic right and wrong. That's not what this passage is going to be speaking about. The jury system in the United States is based largely upon the assumption that all men and women have an innate ability to discern between right and wrong and act in fairness and have a certain sense of what justice looks like. 
In Romans chapter 1, Paul makes it clear that all mankind, assuming a normal intellect, can reason their way to the idea that God exists. So that's not what this passage is talking about. In fact, in that Romans 1 passage, Paul goes on to say that anybody that doesn't reason their way to the fact that God exists is willfully suppressing the knowledge of the truth. So when he speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 of the, of the non-Christian not being able to discern spiritual things, he's not talking about basic ethics, basic morality, right and wrong. He's not talking about the idea that God exists. He expects us to be able to, to get that based upon a view of reality of the universe. But what is he talking about? We're going to say that this morning. When the psalmist says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me, where is your God? He's not insinuating that his opponents who are mocking him do not believe that God exists. But they have no clue as to the nature of that God. And they have no clue as to the interaction of that loving God with his creation. That's what they don't understand. They don't understand God. They may realize that a God exists, but they don't understand him. They don't get him. And we're going to see later, they don't get you either. They didn't get David. They don't understand him at all. And they don't get you if you're really walking in fellowship with God. Paul is not speaking. I want to say this before we get into the text itself. He is not speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 about a basic moral discernment between right and wrong. Or even a basic understanding that God exists. This passage is speaking of something else which we'll unpack momentarily. But first let's read the verses. Verses 10 through 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except for the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. And then in verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that we or he should instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Verse 9, the verse we finished with last time, spoke of God having prepared things that were so wonderful for those who love him that they're difficult to put into words. But God has revealed these things to the believer through the Holy Spirit. There's only one way to comprehend God's wisdom in a mystery, as it's stated in verse 7. And that's through God's Spirit, who searches all things, even the depths or the deep things of God. Human beings do not have access to the wisdom of God until it is graciously bestowed upon them by the Holy Spirit. Because we, as believers, do have access, it doesn't follow that will automatically apprehend the depths of God. 
it does mean that the potential is there, but it doesn't follow that we'll automatically get it all. The Holy Spirit does not infuse information apart from effort. The believer has to avail themselves of opportunities for learning the Word of God. He doesn't just shove it into your soul. You've got to make yourself available to learn the Word of God. Take advantage of every opportunity. And this is no small point in today's Christian culture. I wish it was. So many of us live practically like we think that all we need to know is just going to sink in through osmosis. Not so. That's spiritual laziness, and God doesn't honor laziness, spiritually or any other kind of laziness. I'd invite you to read the Proverbs and come away from that book thinking that God honors any form of laziness. Not at all. He expects us to do the best we can with what we've been given. Let me just lay it out for you. He gave us his best, and oftentimes we give him a half of our best back, and that is wrong. It must surely grieve the Holy Spirit. In this context, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the aspect, the specific aspect of the wisdom of God that is in view is the divine act of love that was exhibited at the cross and the relationship a person could have with God based upon that divine act. That's the specific spiritual mystery that's in view in, in chapter 2. This has been Paul's point all the way back from the beginning of the letter in chapter 1. What happened at the cross is pure foolishness to unregenerate mankind. Back in verse one, chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. There is, of course, more to the wisdom of God than just the gospel. Of course there's more, but... In this specific context, that's what Paul's speaking about. The unbeliever cannot understand the gospel apart from divine enablement. Which means that God, in order for anybody to come to Christ, God has to enable them to do so. The Spirit has to work on their soul. Theologians call that both common and efficacious grace. Common grace is, is something that's applied to all. One way to understand common grace is that anyone who wants to understand God, that wants to understand the cross, that wants to understand how to get to God, God in His grace has the Holy Spirit make that information clear to them and enables them to believe. Apart from that ministry of the Spirit, no one is going to come to Him. No one. But there's more to, to Christianity than just the gospel. After we're saved, there are things that we can never understand without the Spirit's enablement. Verse 11 explains that since human wisdom does not belong to the same sphere as divine wisdom, human wisdom cannot know God. Now, human wisdom can come to the conclusion that God exists. But human wisdom can't know God. There's a difference. I trust you see it. There's a difference between knowing that a deity exists and knowing that deity. For us to know God, God had to make the first move. Because there's this divide there. This is div these are the things divine, and, and then there are things human. And unless the divine doesn't reveal himself to humanity and enable us to understand it, it's not going to happen. And God did this in grace by making himself knowable through the Holy Spirit. 
So in verse 11 says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. God has to reveal himself. And he does it through the word, but he does it by means of the Holy Spirit. At the moment of our salvation, each of us receives the spirit of God. This happens at the moment of faith, not at some subsequent time, as some people claim. We'll study this more when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But some people think that we're saved and that at a later time there is some crisis experience that we have, in their view, often accompanied or, in some people's view, always accompanied by speaking in tongues as the normal necessary sign for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they think that it happens at some time later, after our salvation. Not so. At the moment of salvation, all of us receive the Spirit of God. Notice in verse 12. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. If you're going to do careful Bible study, when we read the text, we, really need, we need to really read it. I will admit something, and I know Dan didn't, I appreciate that a minute ago. I think we're all in that same boat, that we do stray far too often, but... I don't know, there have been times in my life where I knew that I should be studying the Word every day of my life. And in one form or another, I've done that every year since I was 21 years old. So I'm up to like 10 years now from the time that I have done that. But I've got to tell you, that's more than 10. I've got to tell you, there were some days that were better than others. There, there were some days I'd be kind of running late. I remember, I remember one night I had taken a flight from somewhere. I got back in Houston and I realized I hadn't studied the word that day. I pulled off the side of the road because it was like five minutes to midnight. I was so legalistic about it. I pulled off this. You've done it too, haven't you? I pulled off the side of the road onto the shoulder 59 coming from Intercontinental Airport back toward Pasadena. And I opened my Bible and I read as fast as I could for the next five minutes. Now, if you would have asked me three minutes after that five minutes what I had just read, I couldn't tell you. No way. But my eyes had touched the page. So I felt like I had done my duty. Now that's not right. That's not spirituality. That's not Bible study. Bible study needs to be careful and thoughtful. You know what? I've got to tell you something. It's better to read one or two verses and read them carefully and thoughtfully than to say, well, I've got, I'm supposed to read this chapter in the Old Testament, this chapter in the New Testament, this psalm and this proverb today. I've got to get through it. I don't have time. I would advise you, if you don't have the time, for whatever reason, maybe it's legitimate you don't have the time. Most of the time it's not. But maybe it's legitimate that you don't have the time. I would just pick out the part that I could read thoughtfully and carefully and, and, make, and absorb the Word of God and not to rush through it as if, since our eyes touched the page, we did our duty. In verse 12, if we don't rush through it, we see the verb here. Now, we have received. Later on, we, in that verse, we see that we received the Spirit who is from God. You don't have even had to have made a, a, an A or a B in high school grammar to know past tense and present tense, tense of verbs. This is a past tense. We have received. Paul is speaking to probably the most carnal bunch that he ever ministered to. And at the time he speaks this, they had all received the Spirit of God. It's not some subsequent act. You know, if we would just read our Bibles carefully, a lot of bad theology would, would exit right out the front door. What didn't exit there, we read a little more carefully, it's going to go out the back door. Just read. 
We have received, past tense, the Spirit who is from God. And this reception gives us the potential to understand the wisdom of God. Now, we've got to make use of that potential. Just because I had the Spirit of God and just because I pulled off the side of the road and very quickly read it, it didn't mean that that was going to be a spiritual experience. Matter of fact, it was probably a carnal experience and God was probably up there thinking, what is he thinking? What is he doing? Who does he think he's fooling? What difference does it make if it was five minutes till 12 or five minutes after 12? The only difference it made, I wanted to keep my streak going. Really? That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get to the end of my life and say, from every day of my life, from age 21 on, I studied the Word of God every day of my life. And I've often thought, when I get up to heaven, I wonder what God's going to say. Paul has already asserted that his preaching was not with the pervasiveness of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now he elaborates by saying that he preaches what he preaches... This spiritual truth is combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Look at verse 13. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now one quick note here, because in years past I, I have had certain objections to this passage. And one of them went like this. I asked a person why they're not going to church with any regularity. They said, I don't need to go to church anymore. I said, do tell. That's an interesting concept. And they said, I, don't need to, I, don't need, I have no need of a teacher. The Holy Spirit is my teacher. And I have no need of a church. The Holy Spirit's going to be my teacher. Anything I need to know, he's going to let me know. That's a gross misapplication of this passage. What Paul says here. He preaches spiritual truth by combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Or perhaps it could be translated interpreting spiritual things with spiritual words. Or maybe even weds spiritual truth with spiritual expression. There's some debate, as you can see, as how to properly render this into English. It's a challenging passage. But the basic idea is that Paul has drawn what New Testament scholar David Garland calls a thick and heavy line between things human and things divine. And the only way this line can be crossed is by means of the Holy Spirit, with the help of the Holy Spirit. In the final verses of this chapter, Paul explains why the divine wisdom is not received by the world. That tilted look that you get sometimes when you're talking to unbelievers about spiritual things. Natural reason and intuition are completely unable to receive divine realities unaided by the Holy Spirit. Natural reason and intuition are completely unable to receive divine realities unaided by the Holy Spirit. And as I said before, it has nothing to do with intellect. Nothing to do with high IQ or low IQ. Natural reason and intuition can't do it alone. I do believe that the Holy Spirit uses our natural reason and intellect and intuition to work through. He certainly did with the Apostle Paul. It's no accident that he picked the Apostle Paul to write the letter to the Romans about justification by faith. So he used that intellect. But that intellect alone wasn't enough to get Paul to understand it. 
Look at verse 14. But the natural man, or but a natural man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He cannot understand them. Again, don't make the mistake that some Christians have. Some Christians say that an unbeliever cannot distinguish between right and wrong. You're making a huge mistake if you think that. The Bible never expresses that. In fact, there is a moral law written on the hearts of men that does distinguish between right and wrong. Basic right and basic wrong. It doesn't mean that the unbeliever can't come to the conclusion that God exists. It does mean that the unbeliever can't understand that God and would never be able to have, in, the, in his wildest dreams, formulated something like the cross. That's what Paul's been saying since chapter 1. The cross itself is foolishness to them. Now he says, they cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. The designation natural man in the Greek Bible, it's psuchikos anthropos, natural man, is not referring to an immature believer here or a carnal Christian, but to an unbeliever relying upon natural abilities and intellect to comprehend the things of God apart from the Spirit's ministry. In the next chapter, he'll talk about believers who fail to comprehend. But here he's talking about the unbeliever who fails to comprehend. The psuchikos man, the natural man. Paul's going to use two interesting terms in, these, in chapter 2 and then in chapter 3 to describe two distinct groups. Here he uses psuchikos. Sometimes it's translated soulish. That's the best we can do, but natural is fine. To describe the unbeliever. And then in the next chapter, he's going to use a word that we'll study, sarkikos, or fleshly, to describe the weak believer. Two different terms. Sukikos, the natural man is an unbeliever. Sarkikos, the carnal or the fleshly man, is a term used to describe the believer. John Calvin commented on this verse and said, Faced with God's revelation, the unbeliever is like an ass at a concert. It's completely uninterested in the music and disturbs the concert with an irritating commotion. When I was in Pakistan a few years ago, I was preaching in a church, Osam Anthony's church. That church was right next to the sidewalk. You had the street, the sidewalk, and then the church building. There was no parking, anything like that. And there were windows that opened up to the outside. I was right in the middle of what I thought was a very fine sermon. When a donkey, I'm not joking, a donkey stuck his head through the window <laughs> and interrupted the sermon by going, hee-haw, hee-haw, hee-haw. I'm not kidding you. Right in the middle of the sermon, there's a donkey hee-hawing through the window. I was going to say that it's, that's not, that is the first time, but it's not the last time that I've been interrupted by a <laughs> donkey. But it was kind of cool, actually. I couldn't tell if he was agreeing with me or disagreeing with me. Probably neither. He probably didn't understand it. Because according to this passage, he didn't have the Spirit of God. He couldn't understand spiritual truth, right? Good. Without the Holy Spirit, the things of God just don't make sense. And by extension, the actions of the people of God often don't make sense. Have you ever felt misunderstood by the world, misunderstood by your unbelieving friends? They just don't get it. This is the passage that tells us why. They can't get it. If you're walking lockstep with God, they can't get it. It's impossible for them. And this is not a knock on them because every one of us was in the same situation before we came to Christ. And it's an act of grace. 
that we have the Holy Spirit to begin with to help us to understand the things of God. Think back to the Athenians who called Paul a babbler. Or Gallio, the Roman proconsul who called the dispute between Paul and the Jews silly talk. Or Festus, who thought Paul was insane. When a neurosurgeon friend of mine quite a few years ago, who unfortunately is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, was told that I was going to go into ministry, his comment was, has Bruce lost his mind? What can he possibly be thinking? Now, this is a smart guy. To be a neurosurgeon, you've got to be a pretty smart guy. I would think, guy or girl. You've got to be. But he had no clue. It was way beyond him as to what I could possibly be thinking to leave what I was doing and to go into ministry. It made no sense to him at all. Another doctor friend of mine, also unfortunately an unbeliever, told me to my face. Now, the other comment was made to another friend, but this guy told me to my face in front of a pretty large group. When he was told that I was going into ministry, turned around at a conference that we were at, turned around and looked at me and said, I know everybody else is encouraging about this, but I'm not going to. I think it's a shame what you're doing, and I think you're insane. You'll get no encouragement from me. I thought, well, okay, I, I know the, my friend. He's not just an unbeliever, he's an atheist, too. I didn't expect him to understand that. So not only are spiritual things not understood, but sometimes you're not understood. If you're walking in fellowship with God, sometimes the world doesn't understand you. Now, we need to be careful. Sometimes the world doesn't understand us just because we're weird. <laughs> now, that's not what this passage is talking about. And don't be a jerk for Jesus and expect that you're going to be understand and appreciated by the world. That's not what we're talking about either. But when we're walking in fellowship with God, sometimes Christians do things that the world just doesn't get. Why would God sacrifice himself for his creatures? They just don't get that. And the more people, the more unbeliever you've talked to about Christ, the more you've encountered this, I know. In verse 15, But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. Lewis Berry Chafer used this as the title of a book that he wrote in 1918. And it's one of the best books on spirituality ever written. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. As the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, the person guided by the Spirit can examine or appraise all things, particularly God's ways that were formerly hidden from him. By saying that the spiritual person is appraised by no man, it simply means that unbelievers just don't get it when it comes to the believer who is walking in fellowship with God. Now, they get it for a believer who's not walking in fellowship with God. They get that, and they can understand that. But when you are walking in fellowship with God, it's just confusing to them. So don't be surprised, and don't be disappointed by that. In a way, you can be flattered by it. The Amalekite... If you'll recall back in 2 Samuel chapter 1, Saul is killed at the last chapter of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 31. Saul and Jonathan and the two brothers die on Mount Gilboa. As chapter 1 of 2 Samuel opens, you've got this Amalekite that's coming to bring David the news. He's got his crown, he's got a bracelet, and he's going to take the news to David thinking that David is going to be overjoyed 
to hear that his nemesis Saul is dead. You remember that passage from the Old Testament? Just overjoyed. So the guy tells David, thinking that David is going to be, he's going to ingratiate himself to David, and David's going to elevate him to some great point in the kingdom. The guy tells David that actually I'm the one that killed Saul, not true. Saul killed himself, but he wants to take it even a step further, thinking that maybe if he tells David that I'm the one that actually killed him, since David doesn't like him, he thinks everything's going to be cool with him. David's going to give him some money. David's going to give him a great position. Something good's going to happen. If you remember that Old Testament story, it didn't happen good for the Amalekite. David had him killed on the spot. Who are you to lift a hand against the Lord's anointed? The Amalekite had no clue about David. Didn't understand his spirituality at all. How could David be upset that his nemesis was dead? He didn't understand the whole, the Lord's anointed thing. Grossly misunderstood David and paid a fairly significant price for it. So if you find yourselves being misunderstood by your unbelieving friends, maybe it's not such a bad thing. Don't do it on purpose. But if you're walking in fellowship and you're misunderstood, it's not necessarily a bad thing. And then in the final verse of this chapter, we find a citation from the Septuagint translation of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. One more time, the Septuagint was a translation of Hebrew Bible into Greek a couple of hundred years before Jesus. Paul used Septuagint translations a lot. So this is a translation, fairly loose citation, from the Septuagint of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. The point is that we have the Spirit of the Lord, and therefore we can really know Christ. In verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he should instruct him? That's the part that's a citation from Isaiah. Who has known the mind of the Lord, that he should instruct him? The answer is, no one. That's Isaiah's point, back in Isaiah chapter 40. No one knows the mind of the Lord. We can't give the Lord any instruction at all. Oftentimes we try. We get up on our soapbox, our high horse, and we start telling God how he ought to do things. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Father, if it be thy will. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? In Isaiah's context, it ends there and the answer is nobody. But then Paul goes on and says, but we have the mind of Christ. Paul expands the concept here. And relates that we can understand God. We can't correct Him. We can't instruct Him. But we can understand Him. We can understand the mind of Christ. Because we have the Spirit of God enabling us to do so. Some have taken this phrase, the mind of Christ, as a synonym for the Scriptures or for the Bible. And I can see how they might do that, but that really doesn't fit the context here in this passage. Here, the phrase, the mind of Christ, is referring to the thoughts and the attributes of God, or spiritual things. Just like we see over in Paul's letter to the Philippians, the mind of Christ was a mind that exhibited humility. But here's speaking about spiritual things. We know what's in Christ's mind because the Holy Spirit helps us to know what's in Christ's mind. It's not saying that we possess the Bible, although that's true. We do possess divine revelation in that way. But here it's speaking about the ability to comprehend spiritual things. Through the Bible, of course. 
But here it's speaking not so much of the words on the page, but us being able to understand the words that are on the page. Because we have the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit's enablement, no one can understand spiritual truth. Every believer has the Holy Spirit and has the potential to comprehend the wisdom of God. Has the potential. Everyone here today has the potential. But it's up to you to utilize that potential. To walk in fellowship with God, if I, regard, if I regard iniquity in my heart, he will not hear me. If we're walking out of fellowship with God, our prayers go nowhere. And the Spirit's ministry doesn't function in its greatest capacity. It's up to us. So now, what are we going to do with that potential? Well, that's going to be the subject of the next chapter. 